Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, the show for business owners looking to acquire, scale, or exit a business. Before we get on with today's program, we just wanted to let you know that the Buy, Grow, Sell team have been working really hard to come up with more resources that add more value to your journey. This includes a range of webinars, tools, and other events, including an online summit where we get some of the industry's leading experts to come and share their insights. If you'd like to know more, go to buygrowsell.com forward slash events. Enjoy the show. I am super excited about our next guest. Uh, his name is Jonathan Jays uh, from the UK, and he's what I do call a classic and serial entrepreneur. You know, this guy doesn't just start and build companies and sell them. He's buying companies, growing them, selling them. He's using an amazing array of different structures and techniques to, to grow and, and acquire businesses. You know, anybody who can go out there and buy a business turning over five million pounds and buy it for one pound before on selling it for a significant seven figure sum is a guy we can all learn from, right? Now, this is another guy who also, during the pandemic, acquired 48 businesses in the period of a little over two and a half years. So it's a phenomenal story. You know, Jonathan has so many tips along the way from in looking at management teams, how to do transitions, how to do integrations, you know, and even how to find that often elusive strategic acquirer for your own businesses. This is an amazing episode. There's some really phenomenal resources that Jonathan's going to mention it, uh, in the episode as well. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. This has been a brilliant, a brilliant engagement, a brilliant chat. This is Jonathan Jay. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Well, hi, Simon. Thank you for having me. My pleasure indeed. Um, really excited to have you on the show, Jonathan. I, I um, you know, we, you know, as I mentioned to you coming in here, you know, we, we run this show to sort of try to talk to people about their story so that obviously we can help other entrepreneurs and business owners on their journey, you know, perhaps whether it's avoiding some of the pitfalls or, you know, getting insights into what they can do around their strategy. And, and often I think we, we interview people who have um, probably, I, I guess it's probably more weighted towards people who have done an exit because I think, you know, it's probably more common than people who've also done acquisitions. But I was really excited sort of reading some of your background because, you know, you've done an enormous amount of transactions. Um, and, and from what I can tell, even, even doing an enormous amount in a very short period of time at different stints. So I, I was, I, I'm always fascinated when somebody's done the whole buy, grow, sell journey, and then perhaps even done a couple of laps around that merry-go-round. So, um, <laughs> but, but maybe, you know, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but maybe can I can hand it over to you. Maybe you can give us a little bit of your background, kind of what led you to getting into business and, and let's, let's sort of see where things go. Okay, so I, I went to university to study French and discovered I was actually very bad at French. And uh, I, dro I dropped out um, after one term uh, when I was 19 years old because I wanted to start a business. And I didn't really know what sort of business I wanted to start, but I knew that I wanted to be in business. It was kind of something that I knew I had to do. And it actually took me quite a few years to find my feet. So for several years, I didn't have any money. I was um, yeah, living hand to mouth. It, 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 it wasn't fun. It really wasn't fun. And, and then I had a, a, a business where I was publishing magazines. I had three titles 
And sometimes the magazine made a little bit of money. Uh, sometimes it made a little bit of a loss. It wasn't a great business. But then one day someone came to me and asked me whether I would sell the business. And I'd never thought about this before. I thought anyone wanting to buy this business must be crazy. But uh, <laughs> this buyer was a strategic buyer. They wanted uh, access to the database. Uh, the magazine, one particular magazine would advertise their uh, products and services. So we did a deal. And the deal meant that I made more money the day I sold the business than I had in the previous two and a half years of owning it and running it. So to put that another way, I'd worked incredibly hard seven days a week for two and a half years for very little money. But when I sold it, I made an awful lot more money. And that was my, my eye opener, if you like. The, the, the people in business who make the mo most money are the people buying and the people selling. So I then started uh, a business uh, from scratch. It was a, a very uh, high growth uh, business in accredited adult education. Um, in actual fact, it's a business that I franchised into uh, Australia at one point as well. And uh, this was a business that grew very, very rapidly. It was very, very successful. But I had a competitor that was always irritating me. You know, one of those competitors where they always seem to copy what you're doing and um, uh, customers were choosing between us and them. And it became very, very frustrating, especially as the competitors were started by someone who used to work for me and they took some of the staff with them. And um, uh, it, it, was, it was all very, very annoying. However... Five years after they started, they approached me and said, well, I'd be interested in buying the business. Now, most transactions take several months and uh, the larger transactions can take upwards of, of six months, as you as you well know. Uh, this one took five days because <laughs> we had a very motivated seller. Um, I was certainly motivated to buy them um, for uh, emotional reasons as well as uh, uh, logical business reasons. And five days after that initial conversation, I owned the business and uh, was able to merge it with my existing business. So now we had all of their customers, we had their prospects, uh, their marketing fed into our marketing. Uh, we became more profitable, it became a bigger business. And a year later, I sold that to a private equity firm in a, a sort of a retirement level uh, deal, even though I was, I think I was 37 at the time. So that was quite a pivotal moment for me. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really fascinating because I, and I think a lot of people listening to this will relate to the idea of having that one competitor who just annoys the heck out of you. Um, and I don't know, you know it's, it's something that I've certainly found with a lot of my clients and people I talk to over the years that this idea of going and acquiring them doesn't necessarily come up so much in the thinking or if it does, it's kind of almost probably dismissed fairly quickly, um, perhaps made a little easier in your case because the competitor approached you. And uh, I, I, just a few questions around that. Like, one, the fact that they approached you, how did, did that change your perception of them? Did you feel like you had the upper hand a bit because they approached you? Like, how did some of those discussions go? And, and how did you ultimately come up with a number? Okay, good, good, very good questions. So, so yes, it certainly changed the dynamic in 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 the terms of I realised that they wanted to sell and they they'd come to me. So that does give you the the upper hand. But I I have to say, looking back, there was a lot of emotion in it for me because I 
there was a, a, a lot of um, pleasure in sort of taking out that competitor and merging them in uh, with my business. Um, the, the the conversations actually w- was actually one conversation, and uh, it was you know, do you want to buy us? Uh, this is what we've got to sell. Um, propose a number to us. Now, you know, bearing in mind that this was uh, what 18, 18 years ago. Uh, I, I didn't have as much experience as I have now around negotiating. So I probably didn't negotiate as well as I could have done. But the amount that they wanted, I could write a check for. Um, and uh, I, that's why we could do the deal uh, very, very quickly. I didn't need to raise finance for it. So it was a sufficiently modest amount. Now, the reason for that was because the seller was very motivated. Uh, he was older. He wasn't well. Um, so it was an age retirement and um, and unfortunately... Uh, illness situation, uh, but he got what he wanted, which was the exit. I got what I wanted, was to which was to own my competitor's business and practically double the size of our company. Yeah, nice. Uh, if you can remember or not, I'm not sure. But, but was the company profitable at the time? That the one you were buying? A uh, good question. Um, it had very good cash flow. Um, the the owners were taking a lot of money out. Uh, which meant that it never had much cash at bank. It certainly didn't when when we bought it. Um, but it, but by combining the two businesses and getting rid of their overhead, we didn't need all the staff. We didn't need the office space. That actually just made it more profitable. They were spending a lot of money on advertising, so we didn't need to do that anymore because it was all all the customers were coming to the same place. So so that was where the real profit came from. Yeah, isn't that an interesting? And I, I think. There's a great takeaway there for for business owners listening to this at the moment because I, you know, I think the old thing of using your your business as a little bit of an ATM and pulling cat, lots of cash out of it and just sort of you know really using it as the cash till um, is yeah. is a fairly common thing, particularly in smaller businesses. Um, you know, those that I've get over a certain size tend to professionalize more and have professional management teams and whatnot. But um, I think I think for those listening who are in a smaller business. You know, this idea of, um, A, not just using it as an ATM because ultimately, like what you said, you know, your first business, you made more money off the selling the business in the end than you did actually out of the, out of the journey. And, and I think there's, that's, a, that's a great lesson for everybody on, along the way. And I think the second thing I'm taking away from that particular story is when you start getting tired and you're a bit over it and you're feeling like, to, you know, you, you, you're wanting to get out soon, particularly if you've got health issues, the tendency can sometimes be to throw on staff to try to patch problems and it can actually be quite an expensive way to run your business. And so, you know, really you might be actually setting yourself up, you're giving yourself a short-term sort of relief, but you're actually setting yourself up for quite a financial hit down the path. Yeah, absolutely, because all the profitability goes on those extra extra staff and, uh, you know, he, he wasn't in a great position to, to negotiate. And uh, it, it was... Um, uh, yeah, the business had not been run well. Um, I should add that I'm not a great business operator myself, so so uh, um, I'm better at buying and selling than I am at uh, actually operating the business in the in the middle of the ownership. Um, but uh, but but it was it was a great deal because everyone got what they wanted, and it, it gave me scale that allowed me to do the private equity exit a year later. I couldn't have done that otherwise. I would not have been big enough. Yeah. So quick question on that, because I, I think, um, you know, I think people who start to investigate selling their business, um, 
for for the un sort of initiated, this idea of private selling to private equity is almost like the holy grail. You know, oh yes, I'll build this thing up and I'll sell it to private equity and I'll make a lot of money. But you know, certainly in my experience, private equity. You know, every firm is different in terms of how they approach things, different investment mandates, different industries they're interested in, different business models. And then even the financial metrics, right? Like um, I've had different private equity firms say to us, don't talk to us unless they do at least 10 million in turnover. Don't talk to us unless they do at least 25 million in turnover or 2 million in EBIT or whatever their metrics are. So what was your experience with dealing with private equity? And, And obviously, you know, there's that deal, but you probably had other experiences as well. Yeah, so so it was a it was a reasonably new fund. Um, I I sold in two thousand and seven, so money was readily available, and uh, it, it was it was practically one hundred percent leverage. I think something like ninety five percent leveraged, um, and I. I believe at one point I was sent by accident some correspondence uh, from from the lender so I, I I saw how the deal was structured which was uh, which was very interesting to see it from the from the other side um, and, uh, they, they held it for five years and they sold it to uh, to, to someone else and I'm you know, I'm very proud that you know, 20 uh, 24 years later, that business is still is still running. It's still it's still operating, still doing well, um, nice. and it's actually still got the website that I had back in 2007. It's still the same design with a few improvements. <laughs> so, um, so, so sometimes, yeah, you know, when you when you buy a business, you don't want to be changing too many things because if it works, why would you change it? Yeah, yeah, great advice. It's it's interesting. I. I you know, obviously, when we're dealing with larger transactions, you know, and you're selling to private equity, you're not going to tell them how to sort of suck eggs. But where we've had smaller businesses, or where we've had private buyers actually acquiring one of our clients' businesses, and it's usually their first acquisition, we we can't help it. Obviously, you want everybody to have a win-win out of the situation. So, I've I've always found myself almost trying to respectfully provide a little bit of advice to the buyers about, hey, when you get your hands on this, you're going to be tempted to want to run in there and apply all the wonderful knowledge you've gathered over the years. But my my advice is almost don't don't touch it for at least six months, maybe even 12, until you truly understand, A, the sector, but B, the business, the people, and, and fundamentally why things are done the way they're done. Um, because, yeah. you know, you, it's, it's too easy to rush in there and think you know better and screw things up. Oh, oh, absolutely, and I've done that. <laughs> I've, I've I've made all the mistakes. So um, uh, yeah, no, I've 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 been um, a little bit of a bull in a china shop. I don't know whether you have uh, that that expression yep. in Australia. Yeah, a bull in a china shop. Um, and I've you know I've rebranded and done things which, with the benefit of hindsight, I would never uh, never have done. Um, a, a few years later, I actually bought a business from a private equity fund as well, a London-based private equity fund. Uh, one that's renowned for its tough negotiating. And it was uh, a business, a digital marketing business that they bought uh, as a platform investment for a buy and build, for a a roll-up. And they'd never done anything with it. And and I don't actually know why they hadn't, but they'd owned this business for for five years. They'd put in uh, different management teams over the years. The, The current management team was very expensive. And, uh, and and they were running the business very, very badly. So it was making a loss. I found out about it just by chance, complete complete fluke that I had this conversation with someone and they, they, they told me a, a, about it. So I went to see the owners 
And uh, I found out that they were very interested in selling. Um, but because it was loss making, I, I struck a deal with them where I'd buy it from them for one pound, one dollar, and, uh, and, but take on all, all the liabilities. And they were very happy with that because the, the fund was coming up to the end of, of its life and everything in the fund was being, being sold because the profits had to be returned to the original investors. Um, and so this business, they just wanted to get, get rid of it. It was never going to make a profit for them to get rid of it. Uh, and it was a, a, yeah, an okay sized business. It was doing five million pounds. Um, uh, I'm not even sure what that is in uh, uh, in Australian dollars, but but it's a lot. The Australian peso is not performing. <laughs> okay, well, it used to be like I think it was like fifteen million million uh, Australian dollars. Yeah, it's about that. It's and, about uh, that. But and it was making a loss. It was making a loss of three hundred thousand pounds a year. And I always say to people, never, ever buy a loss-making business unless you know two things. Number one, why it's making a loss, and number two, how to, how to fix it. Um, but I understood the type of business it was. I knew why it was making a loss. I knew how to fix it. Uh, it took six months to, to turn it around. And uh, there wasn't any rocket science here. Uh, all I did was stop doing all the things that were making a loss, focused on the, the core business, which was recurring revenue, um, in terms of um, uh, the SEO and the um, uh, the advertising spend, uh, and in actual fact, one of the subsidiaries of this business uh, was a a digital marketing business uh, in Brisbane. And uh, uh, by default, I ended up owning half of this digital marketing business in uh, Brisbane. And I phoned the owners and I said, "I'm your, I'm your new business partner," uh, and I allowed them to buy me out because quite clearly they didn't want the stranger as a new as a new business partner. <laughs> Um, so I turned the business around in a six-month period uh, by hacking it about. There was no, there was no real finesse about it. I had to move very, very fast to save it, uh, and then I sold it to a trade buyer, to a strategic uh, buyer, uh, about six months uh, after that uh, for a, a what was a really good ROI. It was a, a, um, a, mil, a one point three million pounds. Um, so based on a on a one pound initial investment. Uh, it was a really good eleven months uh, that, that it that it all took. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal, and and certainly I think there's um, seems to be a bit of a groundswell out there of people looking for distressed businesses that they can they can acquire and do something with. Um, I do always warn people though that often when you're paying nothing, it's because it's worth nothing. Um, very different when you're buying a business that's turning over five million pounds. There's clearly something there. There's a value proposition. It's a proven business. Um, so, so I find that really interesting. Can I ask though, I mean, you know, I've, I've once again, had many clients over the years and say, you know, business whilst being enormously complex at its core is this quite simple concepts, right? You, you want more profit, you've got two levers, you've got to increase revenue or cut cost, or do a little bit of both if you're, if you're, you know, yeah. a little ambidextrous, but when you've got a company that's making losses like the one you bought. I mean, you must have had to hustle pretty hard. So, like, what, what did that look like? I mean, some of it must have been a bit ugly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there were there were bailiffs uh, outside in the car park, blocking the car park exit, not letting anyone out until their bill was paid. Um, oh. Yeah, it, it was. It was. <laughs> wow. It was. It was. There was a bit of stress uh, involved in it, and I certainly don't recommend people buy distressed businesses unless they really know what they're doing and they've got some experience. Now, the best business to buy is always going to be a solid, profitable business that makes profits, 
that as soon as you own it, it's still making profits and those profits are, are yours. Um, but uh, we, we use the uh, some, some uh, restructuring techniques where we acquired the assets out of the, uh, the, the company. Uh, the company had some rather exotic tax structures, which um, were designed to, to do all sorts of things, but the uh, tax authorities didn't like those anymore. So the actual, the actual company, the legal entity was, was pretty toxic, but the business inside it was fundamentally sound. So we were able to extract the business um, we had to make some redundancies. Uh, it was massively overstaffed. Uh, so we lost about 80 people. Uh, everyone was paid every penny that they were owed. They knew it was overstaffed. They knew the business was in trouble. But we ended up with a smaller business doing three million pounds a year, but recurring revenue, which has an increased value um, than just transactional revenue. So it was it was hard work. Um, and uh, do I think I would do something like that again? Um, uh, yeah, I probably would actually, but um, but I wouldn't but I wouldn't rush into it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think I think it's like anything. You know, people go into business. A lot of this is yes, you're assessing information, but there's got to be a gut instinct about things, right? There's got to be somewhere your gut's telling you, hey, I, I, I this seems to feel right, and hey, it might have some hairs on it. But like you said before, if you can see solutions and you feel like you can match things up, it's like I think if you don't have that positive feeling about it, you know, and 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 the, that desire to take on those challenges, then you should probably run in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, my my sort of my, my sort of instinctive assessment of the business was that if if three million of the annual revenue was recurring SEO, um, yeah. per click advertising, the profit margins on that are absolutely huge. So. If I just had three million of turnover with the right number of staff in the right sized office, uh, and actually it ended up being twelve members of staff, then uh, and outsource anything that I need to do outsource, the profit is sitting in there. I've just got to go and find it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to pause just on that for a second. You know, you've mentioned recurring revenue a couple of times, and and obviously how it how it improves value, and perhaps we can just pick on that a little bit here because it, it speaks to, to the business model, right? And and fundamentally what a buyer is acquiring from you if you're selling. Um, and, and I guess to, to illustrate the point, I, I, I'll give an example. Um, we speak to a lot of clients at the businesses and people from different industries, different sectors with different business models. And, and I think business owners always want more, right? <laughs> you know, I heard somebody sold their business at five times EBITDA, you know, or 10 times this. I read an article and, you know, the, the other day I, I literally had somebody quoting, uh, you know, prices on these unicorn businesses about what they'd sold for. And I'm like, man, like these companies are turning <laughs> yeah. over billions and you're turning over less than a million. Like this yeah. is not this is not the real world, right? Um, but to share an example, we sold a, a software company earlier this year, and um, we love the software space. You know, at Eggs Advisory Group, we've sold a number of businesses like that. Um, and and if you go from software down to highly uh, sort of tech-enabled businesses with other forms of recurring revenue, you know, even e-com businesses with with ongoing consistent buying customers, you know, consumables and things like that, like those models. Just on, just typically attract a lot more value. 
Um, and I'll give you one example. We sold a SaaS company this year, I was going to say this year, it's 23 now, so last year, 2022. Um, I won't say who they were, but you know, about a million and a half in revenue, about 250K in, in EBITDA. So not huge numbers, but because they were a SaaS company and had that recurring revenue model, and it was combined with the fact that they had an enormously enormous addressable market. So the acquirer, who were very, uh, they're a global software aggregator, said, hey, "Your specialist tech, with our reach, we could we could basically." I think the guy said, "We could 10x this business in two years." Um, okay. And so, you know, that nice formula there meant that the the vendors, our clients, they got six times their top line revenue or, or what equated to about 28 times EBITDA. Um, now, there'd be people in the tech space that would go, oh, well, that's not that good. <laughs> I've heard of much better than that. But yeah, okay, sure. But still, uh, you know, I think most people would be very happy to take six times top Absolutely. line revenue. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so it's just an interesting one. And I think, um, you know, if anyone's listening to this and, and saying to themselves, yeah, but that kind of recurring revenue model doesn't work in my industry. I, I would, I would encourage them to rethink that. Um, and if they, and if anyone's listening and want to reach out, we've, we've actually got a little guide on this. But there's, there's multiple recurring revenue models, and I'm genuinely yet to find a business that can't implement at least one of those models for at least a portion of their revenue. Um, you know, I, I'd rather sell my business with at least thirty percent recurring revenue than none. <laughs> Oh, ab absolutely, and, and because it it gives the the buyer some transparency and the the forecasts are more robust because they actually make sense. It's not guessing how much you're going to sell this time next year. It's like, well, yeah, you know, if we keep this this number of customers and the churn is this much, then that's what we're going to be selling. Yeah, and and I think you've nailed it there, right? Is there that the the data's there? You you can see the churn yeah. rates. You understand the cost of acquiring a new customer. How many you're losing out the other end. It becomes more of a discussion of math than emotion. Absolutely, yeah, one one hundred percent. And especially with a financial buyer, it's all about the maths. Um, yeah, indeed. You know, a strategic buyer might sort of yeah want to own you for other reasons, uh, for sort of cross selling opportunities or whatever. But a financial buyer is all about the numbers. Yeah, now that's awesome. Talk to me a little bit. I mean, you've done a lot of transactions, and you've mentioned strategic acquirers a couple of times here. Um, I 100% agree with, with, with you, but I, just for the sake of the audience, how do you look for a strategic acquirer? How do you define one when you're out there looking to sell your businesses? Well, so, so for example, with this digital marketing group, I, I went and met a friend who owns a digital marketing business. And I said to him, I actually said, I actually had this meeting before I bought it, okay? And I said, confidentially, I'm buying this business uh, and you may have heard of it. And yes, he had heard of it. And I said, if I was to sell that business, who would buy it? And he gave me two names. Wow, okay. And even though I went through a marketing exercise to sell it, I went to about a thousand different uh, digital marketing businesses in the UK. Um, it was actually one of the two names that he gave me. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so, nice. So, uh, so it was really finding a match in terms of clients. So our clients were small businesses. Uh, so it was finding someone who was comfortable with small businesses, someone who's got blue chip customers, 
big big corporates isn't going to be interested in you know doing SEO for a dental practice. Yeah, they 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 want the big customers. So it's finding finding that match. So I would actually say that understanding your market and understanding who's doing what you're doing, uh, and also I suppose who can raise the money, who can raise the funding, that is that's critical as well. Yeah, no, all, all fantastic points. It's um, you know, and the funding is such an important one. I've seen too many deals fall over because people's funding wasn't as secure as they had perhaps suggested at the beginning of the discussion. So it's uh, it's it's always an interesting one. Um, I'd love to pick up on one other thing you said just earlier in our conversation. Um, in that um, when you bought that business back in two thousand and seven, there was a lot of money flowing around, and you know, I, I was back in institutional banking back in those days. So I remember that period very clearly, right? And I think you being in the UK and I'm in Australia, we, 2008, the, the GFC, the global financial crisis hit, right? Well, if in, in the US, it was just, you know, the, the recession of 08, when everything just tanked, right? And, and big yes. names that were too big to fail started failing. Um, yes. And you just got me thinking about timing, really. And, and I'm... I'm Curious about your perspective on how important just timing, timing in the market, timing for yourselves personally in your own world, your own position. You know, how important is timing to getting good deals done? I, I think it's so important. Um, it's it's knowing when to get out. I think most entrepreneurs hang on to their businesses too long because the entrepreneurial nature says that next year is going to be better. And, <laughs> and usually next year is not better. Oh, but next year will be better. So they own this business longer and longer and longer, thinking that value is going to increase over time. And it doesn't. It can actually diminish over time. So as we know, the best time to buy a, to, to, to sell a business is when you're on your, that upward curve before you get to the top. And when you get to the top, the only way is down. And I've known people to hang on too long and end up with nothing. Uh, you've got to you've got to know when 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 is the time to say I'm going to cash in my chips, take the money off the table, and then look at doing something else. Yeah, yeah, great advice, great advice. I, I, I actually find too, to, you know, to that point is people um, they wait too long. They don't realize how long the process can take getting ready, yeah. going to market, finding the buyers, negotiating a deal, you know, even getting the final contracts bedded down and getting paid, you know. And so they probably wait till they get to that top and they go, ooh, you know, we're getting a bit toppy here. We're getting a bit, you know, it's, it's you know, I don't really know what next year looks like. I better go and sell now. And it's like, well, now you've found yourself in the middle of a transaction or trying to find buyers right as the market's starting to turn. And, you know, unfortunately, like I, we, we had a a, a transaction that just happened with with the current talk, you know, inflation skyrocketed, you know, yes. all the all the bears have come out and started talking about doom and gloom and recessions, and and while there's still an enormous amount of money sloshing around in the economy and a lot of dry powder sitting with investors, they're a little bit more nervous and they're a little bit more kind of cautious Absolutely. about what they're doing, and so, you know, with that particular transaction, despite all of our best intentions and best knowledge, we kind of missed the window on it. So I think, interesting. you know, yeah, be, being prepared or putting yourself in a position where you're ready to sell, even if you don't want to sell now, is one of the things that I've found drives so much value for, for business owners and entrepreneurs because you can strike when the iron's hot or when that opportunity tends to land in your lap. 
Yeah. Uh, so a, a good example of timing was the pandemic. So, you know, th- th- it was it was perceived either uh, as an opportunity um, in in some ways uh, for business buyers um, or, uh, you know, so some business buyers did nothing, they, especially the private equity funds. They wanted to hold back and see what how it all panned out. Yeah. And I, I'd started buying um, businesses uh, again in 2019 and I bought five pre-pandemic and then uh, my business partner and I in uh, in March of uh, of 2020 said you know what do we do next and we'd actually had some funding pulled um I the 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 finance broker called me and I thought he was calling me to say that funds were on their way to me Uh, he was actually calling me to say that they've stopped all lending so we had to be more uh, creative with our acquisitions. But the decision was, do we push forward or do we hold back like everyone else? So we pushed forward and we were the only buyers in that marketplace. And there were also more sellers. So in fact, it was the perfect combination. So we didn't have any competition buying, but lots of people wanting to sell. And I described it a little bit like one of those game shows where they, they drop a million dollars from the helicopter and people are running around picking up the, uh, the, the, the notes, the, the, the $20 notes, the $20 bills. And as they're, as they're picking them up, they're, they, they're, they're picking them up so fast, they don't realize that as they're holding them in their arms, they're slipping out from, from underneath them. So in fact, actual fact, as they're picking them up, they're losing them at the same time. And that was us with businesses. I, I bought 48 businesses, but the integration was an absolute nightmare because we'd buy a business and almost forget about it because we've got another one happening over here. Wow. Wow. So so I'm just going to backtrack and repeat that for a second. You bought 48 businesses and and in what period of time was that? Uh, Two and a half years, 30 months. (laughs) I think that's a new record for anybody I've had on this show. (laughs) People say, Jonathan, what advice do you give about buying 48 businesses in the pandemic? And my advice is don't do it. I mean, it was... um, it was seriously uh, hard work and it was very, very stressful. And I didn't have a sufficiently developed management team. We were always playing catch up. You know, we didn't, with, with five businesses, we didn't need a particularly robust management team. But as the business grew, we couldn't, we just couldn't recruit fast enough. And uh, in actual fact, um, it, it, it got so stressful. It really did kind of get on top of me. I ended up in hospital. Um, oh, wow. It was, um, uh, I, I had stomach pains that was so acute that I couldn't stand up. Um, it was just awful. And, and, I, and I'm one of those guys that never goes to the doctor, ne- never, never see the doctor. But I thought, I've got to go because this could be serious. And I was Googling it and I was trying to work out what it was myself. And the, the doctor said, we need to get you into hospital to do a colonoscopy, uh, yep. which isn't, isn't my uh, most favorite uh, medical uh, procedure. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to put it lightly, and they couldn't find anything, which was a good thing. But I was also slightly embarrassed because if they said to me, "You've got an ulcer, and that's why you've got the pain, and you need to slow down," then I'd have a justification. But they couldn't find anything, which meant that it was just all the stress in my head was causing this psychosomatic, physical uh, illness. I was take I'd, I'd been taking sleeping tablets for two years. Um, 
I went to see a hypnotherapist to help me sleep better. And she said, well, have you ever considered psychotherapy? And I was like, no, I hadn't. <laughs> um, I'm used to stressful situations. And she said, yeah, but everyone has a limit. And I realized that I'd reached, I'd reached my limit. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Um, it was massively stressful for a, a whole number of reasons. So I ended up just transferring ownership to my business partner and letting her get on with it. Um, I, needed, I needed to just have a complete separation from the business. So it was, it was successful in the acquisitions, but for me, it was very unsuccessful in the, in the exit. Yeah, well, um, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you went through that. It's, um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's hard when you're dealing with a lot of stress and then the body starts reacting. But I, but I congratulate you too on the, on the fact that you've got enough introspection clearly to look inwards and go, okay, like I'm actually open to exploring different things. And, you know, I think, I, I've seen friends who let ego get in the way of their own health even, you know. It's, um, you know, no, 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 it can't be that, you know, and I know I'm not going to go do this and talk to a, you know, therapist or whatever. That's just bullshit. And, and, and they just end up hurting themselves, right? It's, um, so I think, I think being able to stop and look inwards and say, okay, like let's reassess here and, and if need be change course is the fundamental thing that drives, you know, it was usually a fundamental thing is going to determine whether you're successful or, quite frankly, whether you live or not. <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and I have a, a, a seven-year-old daughter. And for, for me, you know, everything I do is, is for her. Um, yeah. And, yeah, she, she's the most important person in my, in my life. And it started to occur to me, could I, could I be that that 51 year old who has a heart attack and drops dead and nothing nothing is is worth that yeah no 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 business no business is worth that yeah yeah i completely agree and i think i i've had a i've had a moment there and stress stress is a killer right like i've i've had that sort of experience where literally at one point i still remember the day where i thought i was gonna have a heart attack and my wife gave me a virtual slap and said, right, drag me out into the backyard, sit down in the sun. Life is not that complicated and you shouldn't be feeling like this. Like you need to just stop. And it was such an important moment for me because I started thinking, why, why am I letting these people in this situation impact me like this? Because it's, it's actually I'm allowing that to happen to me. They're not trying to make me feel like this. So... It was a it was a pretty pivotal moment in in the way I looked at things, and so, you know, once again, I think if people are listening to this right now and feeling under a lot of stress, then you know, it might be time to stop and consider things and look at it from a different angle. But um, yeah, tough tough thing, and I think every business owner goes through it, right? I I have a, a bit of an expression that <laughs> if you, if you haven't had a couple of sleepless nights wondering if your business is going to make it, then you probably haven't been in business. <laughs> Oh, absolutely! I, yeah, anyone who's been in business for 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 a few months knows knows that 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 yeah, there is the rough and the smooth, and it isn't all plain sailing, and there are bumps in the road. And yeah, I was trying to integrate all these businesses with different cultures, uh, different ways of doing things, different employment contracts, different financial systems, and we had such a weak management team that everything landed up on my plate. And I tell all of my clients, I say, look, you're the investor, you know, you're the owner. But other people do the day-to-day -day operations, and I was breaking my own rules and doing everything. I was doing the exact opposite of what I teach other people to do. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. You, you led me on to a, a, a different sort of topic here, a good sort of segue. But I, 
you know, that many transactions, that many businesses that you've acquired, I imagine you've learned a thing or two about transitions and integrations and stuff like that. Um, you know, I think I think it's different if you're if you're not doing anything at the moment and you're buying a business because you're looking for your next thing to sink your teeth into. Well, there's no integration involved, right? You're going in there, you're learning the business, you're you know getting up to speed, etc. But when you do have existing operations and you're you're buying businesses to sort of grow via acquisition, it is a very very different mix. And that integration of, as you said, cultures and even employment contracts and stuff like that is can be really really complicated. And by the way, you're not the first person to tell me I kind of just assumed that would all happen or just you know it's. They love love the hunt and the deal and all the rest of it. So, but do you have any advice for people listening? If you are acquiring companies, like are there a couple of core principles that you now use? Or yeah, what, what yeah. would you suggest to other business owners? Yeah, it, integrations need to be treated very delicately. You need to be very very careful because uh, every every employee of a company that's bought at first will think it's a terrible thing. And they will think that you are the the bad person for buying them. Um, they they will not welcome you readily. So you've got to earn their trust. And the way to earn their trust is to not change anything. Okay. Now, if they if they want a new kettle and a new fridge for the staff room, that's great. Do things like that. Actually, things like that can make a huge difference. You know, I mean, simple things like that. But um, don't go changing the signage and the name of the business and the uniforms. It's just, um, we, we changed too much too quickly and we didn't have enough focus on the people. And that's probably a function of both myself and my business partner are very task orientated. And we didn't stop to think that other people might not be like us and might need you know, more of a cuddle and uh, someone to sit down, have a cup of tea with them, and and say, "Don't worry, look, it's going to be okay. Let's 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 talk this through." So I would have had someone just doing that, someone with amazing people skills who could do that. Um, I mean, all these things are always so clear in hindsight, but at the time when you're moving at a million miles an hour, you you you, you don't have time to to stop and think. Yeah, yeah, that's um that's great advice. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's. I had I had another guest once who who said to me, you know, take the time to talk to people. That's that's what it's about. You know, people feel like if you want to connect with them and you want to demonstrate that you know you're not trying to hurt them, talk to them. And by the way, find out. Don't just go what business. What do you do? And what are your KPIs? Like, how are you going? Who are you? Tell me about yourself. Show some interest. <laughs> Be genuine yeah. in it too. You know, like actually. Yes actually care about these people and take the time to talk to them and you'll be fascinated with what actually comes out in those conversations. Um, and, hey, if you're too busy because you're the entrepreneur and you're, you know, blazing trails somewhere else, then like you just said, have somebody go and talk to them, like, you know, particularly if that somebody is going to be involved in the day-to-day of the business because there's an ongoing relationship there. So, Yeah, 100%. And, and it really is as straightforward as that. I mean, it's, it's not about integrating financial systems and and things like that you know they're all important but without the people you don't have a business and uh you know i i had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of staff um so so looking after those people 
really should have been the first thing that we did. And we didn't, we did it sometimes, but we didn't do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And it's look, it's easy to sort of miss things, right? I think we're all, so one thing of being a business owner, I think, is that we all, you can look at any individual situation and kind of work out broadly what is the right thing to do or the best thing to do. But when you've got 20 of those in front of you and you've only got time to do three of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That exactly, yeah, that's exactly the situation, yes. Yeah. Can I ask, and I'm, I'm sort of cognizant that we're of time and, and whatever else, but just wanted to ask you one other sort of core question is just around this people thing, and you mentioned before about a management team. You know, do you have any tips around what you're looking for in managers? Was there a certain point in your journey where you started to recognise, hey, we need certain specialist leaders in certain skill sets or whatever? Like, how did you grow that management team and what were the signs for you that you needed it? Yeah, so so again, because we were moving so quickly in such a short space of time, our management team just never really caught up. So we had people who um, would have been fine managing a smaller business but when you've got a business with multiple sites, uh, you know, multiple locations, um, you know, with hundreds of staff and all the operations that go with that, thousands of customers, uh, you need people who've done it already. Uh, you haven't got time for people to learn on the job or train them up. You need people who can just step in and they've done something similar in, a, in, a, in another company. Um, those people typically are quite expensive. Uh, so you actually need enough uh, cash flow to support what is an extra layer of cost in the business. And that's why growing businesses should always be raising capital because growing businesses need way more working capital and money for growth than anyone realizes. I think people always underestimate how much cash a business needs when it's growing. So again, you know, yeah, we did lots of things right, by the way. I'm focusing on the things that we did wrong, but but you know, we, we should have raised capital earlier to support that management team earlier. Um, and we, we also, yeah, I always say the most important person in the company is the CFO, the chief financial officer. Um, and we probably had people who are underqualified to run a business of that size. Yeah, that's a really great comment. I, I The CFO thing, I... I've seen so far too many businesses that have outgrown their existing financial team and because they don't come from necessarily a, fan, a finance background, you know, I'm really great at doing these projects or I'm building those widgets or whatever it might be, they're very great at selling more and doing more, et cetera, et cetera, and they kind of just see a CFO as lots of overhead and, well, and, and I kid you not, I, I, I had a client that was doing about 80 million bucks in turnover and just using an outsourced bookkeeper. And when it comes to pulling apart the business, we were like, oh man, like seriously, you need so much more horsepower in this this area Absolutely. and you need yes. the strategic yes. advice that a CFO can bring you because you actually could be far more efficient with your capital. So yes, so it's a, it's a, it is a really interesting one. Um, can I ask you, I, I want to <laughs> I could probably talk to you all day, Jonathan, but um, I'd like to ask one other key question because this one's been coming up a lot just out there in the market. You talked about growing businesses needing working capital. And, of course, working capital, as we all know, is the lifeblood of any business. When you acquire a business, 
clearly you could just buy the assets of a company and drop it into another corporate shell, or you could buy the actual company. You're buying the shares, you're buying the whole thing. I imagine you've done both in different situations. But there's always a lot of confusion for business owners when they're selling the shares and buyers talk to them about, well, we're giving you a price for the business, but you need to leave a certain level of working capital in the company. Yes. And, and a lot of business owners kind of freak out and go, hang on, you're asking me to leave cash in the bank. Like, what? Well, that's my cash. And so I don't know if you've got any thoughts around that or have you had those discussions with, with business oh, yes. owners? Uh, yeah, it's very, it's, very, it's very, very typical. So I, I believe that the negotiation over the amount of working capital left behind is as important as the negotiation about the price and terms. Because if you don't have enough working cap, it means you've got to put money in. And yes. if, you, if you work on the understanding that a business is designed uh, to take money out of, not to put money into, um, then um, the money is already flowing in the, wrong, in the wrong direction. And you're absolutely right. Every seller thinks the money in the bank uh, belongs to them. Um, we use some, uh, some deal structures where we actually use that cash to pay them the initial consideration on completion, on closing. And, uh, and in the UK, it's far more tax effective for that cash to be part of a payment for shares than it is to pay the, the tax rate of taking it out. So, so, so just to clarify that, that point, sorry to cut you off there, but just to clarify that. So I'm going to just use like a really dumb basic example, but, you know, let's say you're, um, you know, you value the assets, then you're adding sort of working capital. So you, you'd prefer people to leave cash in the bank and pay them a bit more than yes. for them to strip it out and pay them less. Is that, yeah. is that kind of basically the guts of it? Yeah. So, so my um, uh, way of operating is to always approach a business and say how can, uh, approach the business with a thought of how can I buy this business without me spending any of my own money? Yep. Because that that's the ultimate leverage. Because if you take that approach, you can buy three businesses, five businesses, ten businesses. Because if you're using your own money, you're going to run out very quickly. So I look at the assets. How can we leverage against the assets? How can we leverage against the outstanding invoices? Can we use the cash at bank? Can there be some um, uh, deferred consideration? So we pay part of the payment for the business over three to five years. Can we use a combination of all of these things? Is there an outstanding director's loan that the, the seller has taken money out of the business, forgotten that they need to put it back in because it's not theirs? They've already spent it, so they can't afford to pay the tax on it because it's all gone. OK, so let's say they've taken out half a million dollars. Um, uh, they've got to put a half a million dollars back. They can't do it. Therefore, we can reduce the cash requirement. We need to buy the business by half a million dollars. We're letting them off the hook. So I look at all these different ways of doing it, because if I can help someone buy a business without using their own money, then it de-risks the transaction. Um, it uh, therefore increases their confidence because people often don't buy a business because they think they've got to remortgage their their property, they've got to get a bank loan with personal guarantees, um, and we don't need to do any of those things. So that working capital, which so so with those forty eight businesses, um, seven of them were situations where the owner paid us on closing, wow. because they had taken prepayments 
for services not yet provided. So let me just do a very simple math. So let's say they'd taken, um, I'll use very, very simple math. So they'd taken a million dollars of prepayments. Okay. Yeah, from customers, that is, right? From customers, yes. For, for service products they haven't yet provided, which were going to be provided by us. The, we were going to be paying them, let's say, $500,000 on completion. So they'd give us a million. We'd give them 500000 now, what if we didn't have $500,000? All we'd say is, well, look, instead of us giving you money, you giving it back, we'll net it off and you give us 500000 So they effectively paid us, gave us money on completion, which meant that we could buy the business without using any of our own money. And that was always a, 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 a bit of a bonus when we found a situation like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and for those listening here and in a sort of banging the steering wheel and saying, what the hell, they pay, like, that's crazy. They're not, they're not actually paying Jonathan to buy his business. It's, the, it's a net. It's a netting off of all the adjustments. And, and adjustments in some of these transactions are huge. Um, I've seen multi-million dollar adjustments in, in transactions. So, you know, the owner is still getting value here, right? It's, it's just that it's, it's how the cash flows and um, how, how the final sort of settlement figure has come up with. So... Um, but congratulations, Jonathan. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, you've done this sort of level of transactions. You've, you, you know, as you said, you've probably picked on a lot of the things that you've done wrong or that have given you lessons and whatever. But you, you know, you don't get to your sort of stage in life and stage of sort of business success without having a lot of positive things and a lot of wins along the way. So, mate, congratulations. It's um, it's it's a, an inspiring story. Uh, it's very kind. Thank you very much. Yeah, I know, I know we're at the sort of top of the hour here, so we sort of probably do need to wrap up. I, I have one last question, which I'm going to ask, which is, which I, I'm really interested in entrepreneurs' definition of success. And so I'd like to ask you, you know, and it is a broad question, but what your definition of success is. Um, but be before you answer, um, are you happy if people listening to this, if they wanted to reach out or message you and, you know, are you on LinkedIn? What's, you know... Yeah, are you happy with people contacting? Absolutely. So search me on LinkedIn. So Jonathan J on LinkedIn. Um, I'll, I'll accept your connection request. Send me a message. Ask me a question. Um, and my YouTube channel has a hundred and seventy videos on buying a business and awesome. uh, interviews with clients um, behind the scenes. I actually took a camera crew around the businesses that I was buying during the pandemic. And wow. uh, you can you can. You can see those businesses and and all the all the challenges. It's like a reality TV show. All the challenges that I encountered. Now that's fantastic. What a fan, brilliant resource. Um, we'll put links to your uh, LinkedIn page uh, and your YouTube channel. Um, yeah. Once again, as Jonathan said, if you do send him a connection request, please put a message in there. Please say, "Hey, listen, I heard you on the Buy Grow podcast." Like, don't be one of those randoms who just sends a connection request. It's it's just not normal so <laughs> um so look that's great so um we'll, we'll put all those links in there i'm going to go and have a bit of a look at your youtube page now because i think that sounds exciting um but to finish up you know do, do you have a basic definition of success that that you sort of live by well it's, it's changed over the years i think in my 20s uh, and actually probably my 30s it was all about money um and it was uh you know what i could afford to do and how much money i had and I've come to realize that, um, especially in the last couple of years, that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money you've got unless you're healthy 
and you're happy and you can uh, go on vacation uh, enjoy the time with your family without getting stressed by you know, messages from the office. So uh, it, it's it's all about happiness for me, where it used to be about money, but no more. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how money's a motivator, but only to a point, right? Like it's, it's once you get enough to live, you take care of all the survival things and you can live to a certain level of you know, comfort. And that doesn't have to be luxury. It can just be a certain level of comfort. How, how our priorities can shift. So um, that's amazing. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been hugely generous with your time and your advice and your stories. So um, I, I've gotten an enormous amount of value out of chatting to you. So I know our listeners will as well. So thank, thank you very kindly for coming on. No, Simon, thank you very much too. Thank you. Brilliant. I hope you all enjoyed the show. Um, I will be putting up a lot of links and um, please feel free to share this with uh, anybody else who might get some benefit out of hearing Jonathan's story. Um, I, I know we're going to be pushing this out to a bunch of people I know who are out there looking to do transactions and looking to, to grow via acquisition. So um, it's been a great episode and I hope you join us for the next one on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.